Our New Testament reading this morning is from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and then the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God who knows the human heart testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to hear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all of the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James said, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins, I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all over peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of the Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and to send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We therefore send to Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you may abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. When they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and to strengthen the believers. After they had been there for some time, they were sent off in peace by the believers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, and there, with many others, they taught and proclaimed the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please pray with me. Living God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your presence among us and for the love that you extend to us in your Son and Spirit. And we do pray now that you would be with us as we sit with your scriptures. We need you. We need your grace. We need your love. We need you to give light to our eyes and to our minds. And so we pray that you would do just that now and that you would renew our wills by your spirit, that we may love you and your ways and that we would walk in them. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. What is your hope? Do you think about your life? what you hope for, what kind of longings, what kind of desires drive you, drive your decision-making, maybe anchor you or help you feel secure. What, what is the hope at the center of your life? I mean, we have lots of hopes. I mean, probably we hope for things like um, good experiences and not bad ones, right? We hope that we uh, would be safe and healthy and things like that, and that our kids would grow up okay. We hope for success in our various worldly endeavors. We hope to feel peace, or we hope that we would be the right kind of people and not the wrong kind of people, whatever it is. But what is the hope that is most foundationally at the core of your being and the center of your life? I want to share with you 
from the Heidelberg Catechism, which comes from a few hundred years ago. It's one of the, one of the tools that we use from the history of the church here in our, in our church and denomination. But the, the first question is just this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And listen to this answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. And it goes on to unpack that a little bit more with what that means. But really this very essence of this hope and comfort expressed in this first statement is simply that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. And I share that, this reflection on hope, because it's tied very centrally, I think, to this concept of the lordship of Jesus and what it means for us to belong to Jesus as Lord. I was listening this week to a podcast uh, called Rebuilders with Mark Sayers. He's a pastor in Australia, really thoughtful, smart uh, student of culture. And um, he was interviewing uh, a man from Iran and they were reflecting on insights from the church in Iran and lessons that the Western church can learn. Because you see, the church in Iran is one of the fastest growing, most, more robust expressions at the forefront of what the Spirit is doing in the world today, where back in the early 1980s, there were something like 500 Christians in the entire nation of Iran when Ayatollah Khomeini came back to power and tried to stamp out the church. And just as you would expect that 500 people to be basically squashed out as there was no no longer any visible presence of the church in the country, um, the exact opposite is actually what happened. And that group of 500 basically started making disciples uh, and suffering persecution. The church began to grow and actually go viral in that country. And today the church in Iran is one of the fastest growing churches in the world. And it's through a movement of discipleship. And so the question for this interview is like, well, what can the Western church learn from the church in Iran? One of the most robust expressions of followers of Jesus in the world today. And his first comment was the, the first lesson the church can learn is that discipleship centers on Jesus as Lord. The Lordship of Jesus. And what does it mean to receive Jesus as Lord, to open up our lives to his rule, to be remade by him, to surrender and to follow, to walk in his ways? See, we Westerners, we don't want to be ruled. We're, um, we've grown up as liberated selves, right? We don't want a ruler. That's the whole point of the revolution. My kids sing Hamilton constantly, and we're always talking about this in my house, as my kids, hip hop style, talk about, you know, to the revolution. We, we rebel against authorities uh, ruling over us, but here's the thing about Jesus. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's good. And the message that the apostles in the book of Acts are stewarding and carrying forward into the world is a message about this crucified, risen savior who is the Lord, whom God has raised up, who is establishing in the earth a new world order under his reign. And at the time, that reign is rivaling the Roman Empire, which is a different world order that comes about by a very different kind of power. Rome extending its, its uh, reign over the earth through military might, establishing its vision for peace on earth called the Pax Romana, 
a vision where the Roman way would be applied to the ends of the earth by Roman might. And then along comes Jesus, and the vision is actually for a different way, the way of God, the vision of shalom, this Hebrew concept of wholeness and justice and peace that God is bringing about in the world through the reign of a very different kind of Lord, not Caesar as Lord, but Jesus as Lord, bringing about by a very different kind of power, not military might, but by self-sacrificial love and the whirlwind of the spirit that is unleashed in the world by God himself. And so you have these competing visions of what the world will be, who's in charge of it, and where it's all going, how it will happen. And the apostles are stewarding this message of the Lordship of Christ. And as we get to this particular episode in the story in chapter 15, this lengthy section we just read, we get to probably the most important moment in the entire book of Acts. This is right at the center of the book. And it has everything to do with the Lordship of Jesus. It has everything to do with the hope that is at the center of our lives and at the center of the world. And basically, Luke, who's writing this story, puts this episode right at the middle of the book because it is the hinge on which all of it turns. If you remember the story, basically the, the ascended Jesus pours out his spirit on the church and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the story begins to unfold from there as, these, as, these, as the apostles, the disciples, the elders, they carry the story of Jesus out into the world. And what happens is that you have people who are outside of Judaism who begin to hear the story and then the spirit of God comes to them without them first becoming Jewish, which is a very surprising plot twist for anyone who has studied the Hebrew Bible, anyone who's been participating in the story thus far, God is actually doing something new, surprising, and exciting. The Spirit is coming upon the Gentiles and the Jewish people in the same way, not having a prerequisite for these Gentiles of first assimilating into the Jewish way of life. But you now have Jewish and non-Jewish people being brought together into one family, and that's complicated for the church, and they're trying to work this out. So what happens in this episode is you've got people coming from Judea up to the place in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas have been, and they try to sort this out because they're like, okay, you're doing it wrong. If we're going to have order in the church, if the people of God are going to be behaving in an orderly manner, it's really important that everyone do what the law requires, which in this case, the thing that they're centering on is circumcision, which was the Jewish mark of belonging to the people of God, and then the dietary laws that go along with participating in Judaism. But what Paul and Barnabas and Peter and the other disciples have already seen and talked about is actually God is choosing to include people who aren't doing those things. The ethnic boundaries of the people of God have been stretched. And what God is now doing is what James in this text, quoting the prophet Amos, talks about, where God is now drawing from people all over the world and bringing them into one family. And the oneness isn't based on their participation in law, their oneness is based on the Spirit. That by God's grace alone, God is including people of every culture, of every language, 
from all over the earth to be one new family in and around and under the lordship of Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas and these others, they come down to Jerusalem to meet up with the other church leaders to sort this out because they're like, hey, we got other people coming up, sending mixed messages. We got to get on the same page here. And so they have a meeting of the church leaders to decide what is our official stance going to be? Like what is necessary for fellowship in this church? Because the goal is no second-class citizens. The goal is God is actually bringing into one family people of all different kinds. And we don't want there to be like the ideal, which is Jewish, and the less than ideal, which is Gentile. Because God, they say, has made no distinction. No second-class citizens in the body of Christ. What are we going to say is necessary that we all observe, or specifically that these Gentile Christians observe? And so they have this meeting and they gather, and what happens here is actually something that would be pretty f uh, familiar in the Greek world about what do you do when there's something to debate. You have these reasoned debates, you have a hearing of the different sides, and then the people who hear the debates will rule on a matter. So as Luke is writing to the Greek world, he's presenting this council in Jerusalem in a way that they would all recognize, oh, this is a very orderly, sensible, and mature way of sorting out differences. And so Peter makes his argument and James makes his, and you've got this council. And what they come to is this sort of strange ruling as we read it, right? That there are four things that are necessary. That they abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, a word I'm sure we all love to say and hear. It's a terrible word. Whatever has been strangled, and blood. That's a really weird statement. I'm glad that's not like our church's statement. If like, what are your core values? Like, we don't do these four things, right? It's a very strange statement. And actually, it's really important that we understand why these four things are named the way they are. Because apart from understanding them in context, we might do very strange things with them. You see, in the ancient world, the only places where all four of these things are mentioned together in one breath. From all of the extant literature we have from the ancient world, the only places where these four things show up in the same place are the descriptions of pagan temple worship in Rome and what they do at the feasts. These aren't just like ethics in general. These are the practices of the rival cult, the emperor cult that is celebrating a different Lord, Caesar, and seeking a different world order, the peace of Rome. And so when, they, when the apostles and the elders prohibit these things from the Gentile Christians, what they are saying is, please don't do the Roman temple feasts. Stay away from those and the practices that they do there. Because you see, here's the thing, in all of these cities, in the synagogues, the law of Moses has been read to the Jewish people forever and ever. And so as you have this new body that's composed of both Jewish and non-Jewish people, all of the Jewish people who are part of this body of Christ now have heard from day one the stories of Maccabees, where it's recounted 
For the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes in the sacred precincts and besides brought in the things for sacrifice that were unfit. You see, one of the most vivid and horrific memories in the collective mind of the Jewish people at the time was the desecrating of the temple of the Lord by Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. And one of the greatest moments in their collective memory would have been the Maccabean Revolt, where Judah Maccabee led a rebellion against this oppressive regime and ushered in uh, an era of relative autonomy for the Jewish people about 100 years before Jesus, 180 years before Jesus. And so there's living in the mind of the people memories of just like the worst of the worst that it can possibly be. And what was that? It was when they did these things in the house of the Lord. Now what the message is, is that God is making a new house out of his people and their life together will be the life of the living temple of the Lord in the world. The people of the spirit, the very dwelling place of God, where God will live, where heaven and earth will kiss. The church is to be the fellowship of the very life of God, the spirit of God. What should they not do? Desecrate the temple. There are two lords in view, Jesus and Caesar. And what the apostles are holding up is a vision of following the one true Lord and turning from the idolatrous following of the other. What the Spirit of God is doing in the world is establishing a single fellowship across ethnic and cultural and linguistic barriers. And what comes about as a result of that is all the complicated friction of mixing people who do things differently. But this is what the grace of God is up to. This is what the spirit of God is up to. And the yoke, that is the burden, the requirement, that the apostles put on this new church is not the heavy burden of law that would require all the people to assimilate into the dominant culture of the church, which would be to follow Jewish law, but it is the easy yoke, the light burden that Jesus himself says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fellowship in this church is based on receiving the gift of the Spirit, the grace of God. And this church, animated by the Spirit, is to embrace everyone. And this is the challenge, I think, for us as we think about what is our hope, right? What is our comfort? What is gonna be at the center of our community here in Philadelphia? What are we going to be about? Are we gonna be about doing things the way we do them? Are we going to be about being the right kind of people and not the wrong kind of people? Are we going to be about not getting it wrong and keeping out the people we view as maybe getting it wrong? Or will we be about the grace of God? Will we be about, we are those who are known and loved just as we are. We are embraced just as we are. And therefore we expect that our neighbor can be embraced just as he, she, they may be.
The church, animated by the Spirit, is given this charter of embracing its neighbors and of ordering life within it in this kind of unity that's not cultural uniformity, but is this hard work of striving toward oneness, even across all of the different kinds of diversity that the church may enfold into its fellowship. But here's the thing about the grace of God and the hope that we have in Christ and how it attaches to the Lordship of Jesus. And I think it's summed up in this beautiful quote by Anne Lamott that Cindy referenced a few weeks ago. But Anne Lamott writes this, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. And this is what we begin to see in the movement of the Spirit. God embraces everyone that the church embraces by grace. There's no one unwelcome. There's no one who's outside of its embrace. And at the same time, everyone who is brought in is invited into this fully transformative engagement in the life of God, where God takes us on a journey of transformation, remaking us, enlivening us, changing us more and more into the likeness of Jesus so that we are going together into the world more and more as those who love God with our whole selves and love neighbor with our whole selves, like Jesus, enlivened by the Spirit. And so that vision of fully inclusive and fully transformative is the vision that we get in the church of Acts. And I think it's a vision held up for us in our day as well. What does it look like for us to be radically welcoming and radically following? Radically embracing the other not as second-class citizens, but as equals, equal bearers of the divine image, equally invited to the table of Christ. And at the same time, be embarking together, shoulder to shoulder on that journey toward Jesus, where we're asking him to reign over us, to take us, to change us, to bend our will to match his, to lead us in the way of goodness and beauty and truth, that we may walk in the way of obedience completely remade by his grace. This is the vision that's held up at the center of the Church of Acts. And this is what the apostles gather to ratify together when they come together and they say, what are we going to be about? And they unanimously make this decision to say, look, just do this. Turn from the rival Lord. Stay away from the temples of the other world vision and other Lord. And instead, give yourselves wholly unto Jesus, this one whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the story that unfolds from there is actually the story of the rest of world history as we know it. As those disciples make more disciples who make more disciples who make more disciples and the life and the love of Jesus begins to go viral in the world. You and I are the beneficiaries of that. And what we in the Western church, I think, need to learn from our sisters and our brothers in Iran and other places in the world who are experiencing this kind of movement is that we need to detox off of all the counterfeit hopes that drive our lives. 
And the way to do that is by engaging this life of discipleship where we receive Jesus as Lord, fall into him, bend the knee to him, and receive from him our identity, our calling, our mission, and our power. If we live like that, resurrection, we will know God. We will know joy in the midst of suffering. We will know more of what it means to follow Jesus into a dark and dangerous world, not as fearful people, but as ambassadors of God's kingdom on earth, seeking it here in this place as it is in heaven. We need that, the city needs that, our neighbors need that. Most importantly, it's what God is doing and he invites us to get involved. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your love toward us and the power of your spirit. We acknowledge that we are always tempted to try to tie a bow on what you're doing and control it, to be able to explain it, to be able to draw a perimeter around what it is that you're doing and say everything inside is good and everything outside is bad, but we can't do that. And so we confess our attempts to control you. We, attempt, we confess our desire for clarity more than faith. And we pray that you would meet us and guide us as a church. We pray that you would help us to find our security in the presence of your spirit and not in our ability to explain everything or have rational certainty about every last thing. But we pray that you would help us to trust you, to actually open our lives to you and be willing to go where you lead. And we pray that as we do that, that you would bring renewal to our souls, revival to this city. We pray that you would make us fruitful and that you would bring forth into this place your justice, your peace, and the wholeness of your life-giving reign. May your new world order come in fullness on this place. Through the love of Christ, we pray. Amen. Now we have a special moment in our service today where, as many of you know, we recently uh, ordained and installed new elders and deacons. Those are officers in our church. Those are people who are nominated by the congregation. Elders are shepherds. Deacons are servants, kind of shepherd leaders and servant leaders among us. And um, what we have now that we've merged our churches and have established Resurrection Philadelphia, we, we have an annual rhythm where every fall and winter we'll be nominating new officers and they'll go through training and every spring we'll be electing new officers and every summer we'll be ordaining and installing them. And then about this time every year, every fall, we're going to thank and bless our outgoing ones because our officers are going to serve four-year terms. And when their term is up, they're going to take a break for at least a year before being eligible to be nominated again. Now, being at this strange moment in our organization story and history, we have some officers who've served a lot longer than four years. Um, and specifically, our outgoing elders have served for a really long time. I just want to acknowledge and name Kevin Kleinschmidt, also Dick Landis and Joshua Stamper, who are our elders who have served way more than four-year terms, who've served faithfully for like a decade at this point. Um, Kevin from Liberty and Josh and Dick from City Church, but both having served 
for the entirety of our time as a merged church. And I can just say this, having walked with each of them for different lengths of time, but very meaningful lengths of time, the, the pastoral care that these elders have exercised is so heartening and encouraging to me personally and so life-giving to our church. Elders have the honor and the challenge of wading into some of the hardest and most delicate places in our lives, the places of greatest pain, uh, the places of greatest confusion, and sometimes relational brokenness. And they can be really, really painful places. And elders have this distinct job of coming alongside in both the ordinary and extraordinary times and walking with us as shepherds who help us look to Jesus, who help us know the comfort and peace of God in the midst of whatever it is we're going through. And Kevin and Josh and Dick have done that with grace and with care and with wisdom. And so it is with profound thanks that we say thank you for your service. Um, we honor you as you roll off and we give thanks for your ministry among us. Also, Jonathan Bassett and Katie Brindley and Ted Voberl have served as deacons and have completed their terms. And so we also wanna thank and honor you. Deacons are lead servants among us and often lead our church in caring for the poor, in mobilizing us toward generosity and generous giving, toward serving, showing up in the lives of our neighbors in ways where we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so it's been a joy to serve also with these deacons who've completed their term. You know, Jonathan has taken a lead role often in leading us in providing financial assistance for those who've needed it. Um, Katie has helped to establish relationships with us uh, between our church and like the New Day ministry, for example. She was the, the chief leader in that project and building that relationship. Ted has served as the chair of our diaconate and has convened the deacons and led through what has been really a very confusing season with COVID and just what does it mean to be the church and to meet the moment. And so I honor them and thank them as well for their service. Um, you will be missed. We really thank you for what you've done. And also just want to acknowledge Gretchen Wendell, Josh Paris, and David Wynn, who also have, um, have completed their service as deacons during this past year at uh, various times and have led us faithfully also. These are servants whom God has blessed us with. And I just want to offer a very a heartfelt and sincere prayer of gratitude and blessing upon them. So would you join me now in prayer? Our God and Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that we belong to you and also to one another and how you raise up from among us leaders to shepherd us, to care for us, to help us walk by faith and to take the next steps, to live generously with our finances and with our time, to see our neighbors as your beloved and to serve them as those worthy of love. We thank you for Kevin and for Josh and for Dick and for their long service as elders in our church, for the lives you've enriched through their service. And we pray now for them as they roll off of active duty and into a season of rest, that you would replenish them and make their Sabbath rest renewing. I pray that you would meet them in this time and enable them to look back on their time of service with gratitude and joy. And we pray that you would bless them in this next season.
And for Jonathan and for Katie and for Ted, who have completed their time as deacons, we pray the same for them. Would you renew them in your presence, restore them in a season of rest? And would you inspire the rest of us by their example to serve, to lead, and to bless? For Gretchen, for Josh, for David as well, we give you thanks for their ministry among us. And we ask that you would be with them and bless them uh, in their season of inactive duty as an officer, but still as very much as servants in your church. God, we give you thanks for these good gifts that you've given us. And we pray now that you would also lead us in this next season and bless the incoming new officers, that those you've raised up to lead us would serve well and that you would be growing us as a church and establishing us more and more as a community that follows in your ways, that abides in your love, that is a house of prayer, that serves the poor, that celebrates your lordship and seeks to be remade in your image. God, remake us by your grace. We give you thanks for the good gifts you've given us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.